Hello, everyone. Welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for being here, for tuning in to this week's episode. It's been a couple weeks since I recorded. I talked really big at the beginning of the year about how I'm on this great schedule and great plan for recording. And that was all true. And some medical things pop up that are all good now. So we are back. We are ready. I'm energized and we are getting into the Dust Bowl today. So this is fascinating to me because I just read the book, The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. I'll just tell you, if you have not read that book, it is sad. It is really sad. Now, I like it because it's mostly historically accurate. Like all of the big events that they talked about did happen in the Dust Bowl, and we will go over that in our timeline discussion. So it was really informative. It's a part of history that I didn't know a ton about and it did make me fascinated to learn more. So I really liked that aspect of the book. But if you want to read an uplifting, happy book, this is not the book for you. It's like everything that could go wrong does go wrong. There's a tiny bit of a glimmer of hope at the very end, like in the epilogue. But other than that, it's pretty depressing. So I'll just put that out there. It's called The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. It was a good book. Like I I hated it kind of all during when I was reading it because it was like thing after thing went wrong, but I got finished and I was like, wow, that was a really great book. So there's that. Um, Anyway, today we were talking about the Dust Bowl. We'll go over like the timeline, the actual history with it, um, and then the farming practices that led to it. So there were multiple conditions that led to the Dust Bowl. A lot of it was like the weather, but a lot of it was also farming practices. And so we're going to go over what the farming practices were back then and how it changed and how, you know, the Dust Bowl ended. So we're going to go over all of that. I hope you enjoy and let's get into it. Okay, so what is the Dust Bowl? Let's talk about that just so that everyone is on the same page. The Dust Bowl was the name given to a drought-stricken Southern Plains region of the United States, which suffered severe dust storms during a drought in the 1930s. So what this book and what all of these articles talk about are these crazy high winds and this th- these thick, thick layers of dust that would blow through and sweep the region. It basically was from Texas to Nebraska, all of those people in the region. There were a lot of people, a lot of livestock killed, crops failed, like big chunks of crops failed. Um, Now, this was also during the Great Depression, so it intensified the economic impacts of the Great Depression. And a lot of farming families, therefore, had to go and try to migrate to cities in search of work. Now, again, this didn't help a ton for a lot of them because, you know, in the cities, many, many people were out of work and out of their jobs because it was in the middle of the Great Depression. So, like in the Four Winds book, this family leaves. Well, so the dad actually abandoned the family to go to California and look for work. And that was apparently quite a common thing for some of the men to do is just desert the families in the plains. So this was a farming family. They lived in Texas and the dad just up and left one day because the family didn't want to leave. Eventually the son got such bad dust asthma that they, the rest of them had to leave, but the dad never came back um, in the book. And that was pretty common 
But when they went, they went and moved to California. And when they got there, they were expecting this land of milk and honey, as all these advertisements were saying. And um, there was like false advertising that they could get jobs out there and that it would all be better. But they ended up having to live in these dirty migrant camps, like basically homeless camps on the side of the road. And so it was just terrible living conditions. But that is all factually accurate where a lot of these migrants came. There were advertisements to get them there because the, you know, farmers and, the, you know, they were looking for workers on the farms. These farmers were in California. They wanted some cheap labor basically so they would be in search of migrants and were advertising to come out to California so that is all very accurate so let's talk about what caused the Dust Bowl so there were several economic and agricultural factors including federal land policies changing changes in regional weather also farm economics and there were cultural factors that all kind of culminated at the same time to create the Dust Bowl so after the Civil War, there was a series of federal land acts that co- coaxed pioneers westward by incentivizing farms, or, yeah, farming in the Great Plains. So we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there was an act called the Homestead Act of 1862. So that, in that act, settlers could, would be granted 160 acres of public land if you farmed it. That was then followed by the Kincaid Act of 1904 and the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909. So a lot of people moved out across the Great Plains and started farming the Great Plains, but they were very inexperienced. So we'll talk about the farming practices that led to this, but basically there's a lot of inexperienced farmers that started farming the Great Plains. This led to a lot of just degeneration of the topsoil and of the land and so when the drought came and the winds came you know a lot of the grass had been torn up there was nothing to root the topsoil to the ground so when the winds swept across the plains it just took like all the topsoil with it and there were these just huge dust storms so many of the late 19th and 20th century settlers lived by the superstition rain follows the plow This is very important because emigrants, land speculators, politicians, and even some scientists believe that homesteading and agriculture would permanently affect the climate of the semi-arid Great Plains region and make it more conducive to farming. So they just thought it doesn't really matter if it's semi-arid. If I plow it, the rain will basically come and will change the climate here. It's kind of crazy that even just 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, That was the commonly held belief. And so that was a big thing. It was a lot of inexperienced farmers, a lot of over farming, ripping out the native grasses and stuff. And again, we'll get into more of those details. But they also talk about, and by the way, this link or this article that I'm going over is from history.com. I will leave the link in the description so you can go and read it for yourself if you would like. But so Manifest Destiny also tied into this idea and the false belief that the rain followed the plow was also linked to manifest destiny which was an attitude that americans had a duty it was like a sacred duty to expand and to expand west so it also happened to align with kind of an off 
like an unusual number of years of a lot of rain. So it didn't help because as people were moving west, there was an unusually wet couple of years. And so they thought, oh, this this theory is actually correct. Like the rain follows the plow. We are farming this and the rain is coming. So it kind of confirmed their false belief in that way. And so it said it led to the intensive cultivation cultivation of increasingly marginal lands that cannot be reached by irrigation. So then wheat prices in the 1910s and 1920s increased, and that increased demand for wheat from Europe during World War I encouraged farmers to plow up millions of acres of native grassland to plant the wheat, corn, and other row crops. But the U.S. then entered the Great Depression, wheat prices plummeted. So farmers were desperate and they tore up even more grassland to harvest a bumper crop and break even. So it's kind of this vicious cycle of like, okay, now the price is falling, we need to harvest more. And it's just ripping up even more and more of this native grassland. So the onset of the drought happened in 1931, crops began to fail. And when they failed, it exposed the overplowed, bare farmland, and there were no deep-rooted prairie grasses anymore, nothing to hold the soil in place. And so again, when the winds came, the soil just blew away and created these massive, massive dust storms and just a total economic crisis. So the Dust Bowl, it says, when was the Dust Bowl? The Dust Bowl was known as the Dirty 30s. It started in 1930, and it lasted for about a decade but its long-term economic impacts on the region lingered much longer, it says. So severe drought hit the Midwest and the Southern Great Plains in 1930. The dust storms storms began the next year in 1931. And then there were a series of drought years after that. It says that by 1934, an estimated 35 million acres of formerly cultivated land had been rendered useless for farming. Another 125 million acres was rapidly losing topsoil, which by the way, 125 million acres is about three quarters the size of Texas. So that was rapidly losing topsoil. Now, regular rainfall returned to the region by the end of 1939, which brought the Dust Bowl years to a close. But there were still these economic effects, especially in the worst hit counties um, of the Dust Bowl, the agricultural value of the land failed to recover well into the 1950s. You know, there was so much damage done by these farming practices that it takes a good while to have it recover, to like restore the topsoil, to restore some native grasses. And in the book, and we'll talk about how we recovered, but, you know, in the book, there was someone from the government who came to their town, the farming town, and said, hey, this is what's happening you know, the farming practices led to these topsoils being blown away. A lot of people took offense to it and said, like, well, this is not our fault that this drought is happening, basically. But they presented a strategy to help turn around, you know, the loss of topsoil and get get it all back and restored to the land. But, of course, it takes some time. So there were programs to, like, pay people to not farm for a little bit or pay people to kind of carve out the land in certain ways in order to preserve what's left of the topsoil. And there was a whole kind of environmental effort to restore this land. But naturally, it does take quite a while. Okay, 
Black blizzards. So these are severe, severe dust storms that are called black blizzards. These started sweeping the Great Plains during the Dust Bowl period. So a lot of these actually carried some topsoil from Texas and Oklahoma, like in that area, to places as far as D.C. and New York. Oh, uh, ships in the Atlantic Ocean sometimes were coated with dust. So, you know, I always kind of thought of the Dust Bowl as a very regional problem, but the dust in the topsoil was blowing everywhere in the country. Billowing clouds of dust would darken the sky, sometimes for days at a time. In many places, the dust drifted like snow and residents had to clear it with shovels. It worked its way through the cracks of even well-sealed homes, leaving a coating on food, skin, and furniture. Now, this is like in the... Um, in the book where the sun develops dust pneumonia. So many people developed this and, you know, it included things like chest pain and difficulty breathing. A lot of people died from the condition, a lot of, you know, mostly kids and the elderly, but hundreds to several thousands of people died from dust pneumonia. A lot of people also decided to leave their homes before maybe they died from dust pneumonia. So, um, you know, if everyone had stayed put, then it the number would be a lot higher. But I think a lot of families who were experiencing this or started getting dust pneumonia ended up trying to be migrants and going to somewhere they thought they could get jobs. On May 11th, 1934, there was a massive dust storm two miles high. It traveled 2,000 miles to the East Coast and blotted out monuments like the Statue of Liberty and the U.S. Capitol. But the worst storm was called Black Sunday. Now, this occurred on April 14th, 1935. It was a wall of blowing sand and dust that started in the Oklahoma panhandle and it spread east. Three million tons of topsoil are estimated to have blown off the Great Plains during the singular storm called Black Sunday. Um, An Associated Press news report coined the term Dust Bowl after the Black Sunday dust storm. So it was not known as the Dust Bowl until about 1935, even though it had been happening for about five years. That's when it was coined. Okay, so how did the New Deal, you know, this is during the time of the Great Depression, so there were a bunch of New Deal programs trying to get, that that Roosevelt was putting in place to try to get us out of the Great Depression, and these kind of cross over with the Dust Bowl. So Franklin D. Roosevelt established a number of measures to help alleviate the plight of poor and displaced farmers. He addressed the environmental degradation that had led to the Dust Bowl in the first place. So this is in the book. I keep referencing this book. You should go read it so that this makes more sense. But um, I'm trying to explain what happened in the book. But I like, again, I like the book because it's so accurate. Like all of these things happen. They explain that the New Deal programs were put in place. Um, So when the man from the government came into the town and explained what the government wants to do, this was part of the New Deal program to address this environmental degradation that had happened that caused the the Dust Bowl. So Congress established something called the Soil Erosion Service and the Prairie States Forestry Project. So those were established in 1935. These programs put local farmers to work planting trees as windbreaks on farms all across the Great Plains. So a lot of people left their farms to go migrate because they were getting dust pneumonia, their animals had died, all sorts of things. 
but the ones who stayed were paid to plant trees instead of crops as windbreaks. Now, the Soil Erosion Service is now called the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and it was developed and promoted new farming techniques to combat the problem of soil erosion. So for anyone who stayed, that's what they were paid to do, is implement these new farming techniques. Okay, let's talk about Oki migration, because now every migrant, pretty much, that went to California, at least from what I've read from the book, you could be from Texas, you could be from anywhere in this region that is affected by the Dust Bowl. They were just widely, migrants were called Okies, which is in reference to Oklahoma. It says roughly 2.5 million people left the Dust Bowl states, which include Texas, Mexico, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma. During the 1930s, it was one of the largest migrations in American history. Oklahoma alone, it says, lost 440,000 people to migration. A a lot of them, obviously, at this point were poverty-stricken, and they were traveling west to look for work. 250,000 Oklahoma migrants moved to California, and a third of those settled in the San, San Joaquin Valley. So the San Joaquin Valley is where the characters in the book um, settled. And so that was kind of, it kind of explained like the average plight of an Oklahoma or Texas migrant. Many people settled in this valley because there were a lot of farms and the farmers needed people to pick their crops. So those Dust Bowl refugees were called Okies. They faced discrimination, like terrible wages. They would go around and try to, you know, get jobs. And because there were so many of them, there were just so, so many workers and everyone was desperate for a job. The farmers were able to kind of take advantage of them and just offered just these pitiful wages um, to people. And they would take them because you know, you kind of have to, like they need to survive. So anyway, supply and demand sort of thing. The supply was so high of workers that they were just able to pay almost nothing. Many of them lived in shanty towns and tents along irrigation ditches. And Oki soon became like a slur. It became a, a term of disdain, it says, used to refer to any poor dust bowl migrant. So they didn't have to be from Oklahoma if you were poor and you were a migrant and you were new to town, they would call you an Okie. Okay. Um, it talks a little bit about the art and culture of the Dust Bowl here. I'm probably not going to go into too much detail, but John Steinbeck memorialized the plight of the Okies in his 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath. That's like a big one about the Dust Bowl that I would really like to read. Um, there was a folk, you know, folk musician Woody Guthrie and his semi-autobiographical, oh my gosh, and his semi-autobiographical first album, Dust Bowl Ballads of 1940, told stories of economic hardship, hardship faced by the Okies in California. Um, and he actually was an Oklahoma native that left his home state to look for work in the Dust Bowl. So that is pretty interesting. Okay, so I wanted to go, that was kind of a general overview of things that happened in the Dust Bowl. I wanted to get a more solidified timeline of the Dust Bowl because, you know, some of these articles are very good about generalizing 
what happened in general, but I want like actual dates. So let's get into the timeline. Okay, let's get into the timeline. So as we kind of mentioned, 1930 to 1931 is when severe droughts hit the Midwest and the Southern Plains and crops start to die. The black blizzards begin. So all the dust from the overplowed and overgrazed lands begins to blow across the country. So 1932 is really when the number of dust storms starts increasing that first year. It just kind of starts. But then in 1932, there are 14 reported. By 1933, there's 38. So it's rapidly increasing. On March 4th, 1933, it says that when Roosevelt takes office, the country is in desperate straits. He declared a four-day bank holiday, which we talked about during the Great Depression. But he declares a four-day bank holiday. And during that time, Congress came up with the Emergency Banking Act of 1933. So that stabilized banking industry and helped to restore people's faith in the banking system by basically putting the federal government behind the banking system. May 12th of the same year, 1933, the Emergency Farm Mortgage Act is passed and it allots $200 million to refinance mortgages of farmers who are facing foreclosure. So it establishes a local bank and it sets up local credit associations. So, you know, all these farmers with their land, a lot of it was, you know, they had a loan on it and it every year they needed to get crops to pay their mortgage. A lot of these farmers are facing foreclosure. So this helped to help them refinance. Um, June 18th of 1933, the Civilian Conservation Corps opened its first soil erosion control camp in Clayton County, Alabama. By September of that year, there's 161 soil erosion camps. So a huge explosion just in a few short months from June to September. Now, September of 1933, this is where it gets kind of crazy. So, okay, the prices of things were all out of whack because, you know, in a lot of places, like people were getting crops or had livestock or things, but they couldn't, they didn't have the money or they couldn't, uh, they didn't have the transportation to get the food, the meat or the crops to the cities where people were waiting in food lines and starving. And so, you know, okay, so in September 1933, over 6 million young pigs are slaughtered to stabilize the prices. With most of the meat going to waste, public outcry will lead to the creation in October of the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation. The FSRC will divert agricultural commodities to relief organizations. Apples, beans, canned beef, flour, and pork products will be distributed through local relief channels. Cotton goods are eventually included to clothe the needy as well. So yeah, September of 1933, they said the prices are way too low. We need to stabilize these prices, just slaughter these pigs. But they didn't have the infrastructure or the programs in place to actually get that food to any of the poor people in the cities that didn't have jobs and needed food. 
So big learning lesson there, but the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation was made. Okay, October 4th, 1933. Lots happened in 1943. In California's San Joaquin Valley, where many farmers flee the pl- uh, where many farmers fleeing the plains have gone seeking migrant farm work, the largest agricultural strike in American history begins. 18,000 cotton workers from the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union strike for 24 days. During the strike, two men and one woman are killed and hundreds are injured. In the settlement, the union is recognized by growers and workers are given a 25% raise. So, this is also in the book. Um, the family that they follow, the, the mom, join, ends up joining this strike. Well, it doesn't specify that it's this strike, but basically she helps organize a strike and it's pretty tragic. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but so they strike and are given a raise, but it was a lot to coordinate the strike. And from what the book outlines, it's like there were a lot of communist undertones because a lot of these farmers who ended up moving for work were super proud individuals. You know, there was a stigma back in this time about accepting help from the government, which, you know, I like that you, people weren't just like eager to get handouts. They were wanting to make it on their own. And so the people organizing the strikes were communists. You know, they they were in the communist party because basically at that time, I feel like you had to go so extreme. Um, you know, I feel like they took one kind of aspect of of communism and said, oh, we're communists, we're joining the communist party. So you know, it was a big leap for people to join a strike, for people to join a union and to try to strike for better wages because it was run, at least if the book is accurate, by like the Communist Party. But they did eventually organize a strike and 18,000 cotton workers uh, struck and did receive better wages. May of 1934, the dust storms spread from the Dust Bowl area. The drought is the worst ever in the U.S. history, covering more than 75% of the country. It affected 27 states severely. June 28th of 1934, Roosevelt signs the Taylor Grazing Act. So what that does is it allows him to take up to 140 million acres of federally owned land out of the public domain and establish grazing districts that will be carefully monitored. So this is one of the New Deal efforts that was put in place to heal the damage that had been done to the land because of the overuse. Um, It says the program is able to arrest the deteriorations. Oh, so it's able to stop the deteriorations, but cannot undo the damage that has already been done. The same day, June 28th, 1934, the Fraser lemke Farm Bankruptcy Act is approved which restricts the ability of banks to dispossess farmers in times of distress. So it was originally effective until 1938, but it keeps being renewed until 1947 when it retires. Or sorry, expires. Okay, December of 1934, there's something called the Yearbook of Agriculture. And it announces that approximately 35 million acres of formerly cultivated land have essentially been destroyed for crop production, 100 million acres uh, now in crops have lost all or most of the topsoil, and 125 million acres of land are rapidly losing topsoil. 
this again, this is not, we're in kind of dire straits here. Like some of it is just beyond the point of repair and some of it is kind of getting to that point. The Drought Relief Service is established on January 15th, 1935 to coordinate relief activities. So the DRS buys cattle in some counties that are designated emergency areas for $14 to $20 a head. This did happen also in the book. They said if you're, you know, staying, even if your animal is like dying or or dead or just in terrible condition, we'll still pay like $14 to $20 a head. It says those unfit for human consumption, which was more than 50% at the beginning of the program, are destroyed. The remaining cattle are given to the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation to be used for food distribution to families nationwide. So it's difficult for farmers to give up their herds. Obviously, you know, that's kind of like their livestock, but they're getting paid for it so they can survive a little bit longer. Um, The cattle slaughter program, though, helped many of them avoid bankruptcy. It says that the government cattle buying program was a godsend to many farmers as they could not afford to keep their cattle and the government paid a better price than they could obtain in local markets. In 1835, on April 8th, FDR approves the Emergency Relief Appropriation Act. It provides $525 million for drought relief and it authorizes the creation of the Works Progress Administration, which eventually employs 8.5 million people. You know, you can say a lot about uh, a lot of things about Roosevelt, but he was getting things passed, you know. You can say if it was a good strategy or a bad strategy, but he was doing something. Okay. April 14th, we've already went over 1935 was the worst black blizzard of the Dust Bowl, and this is Black Sunday. April 27th of the same year, Congress declares soil erosion a national menace in an act establishing the Soil Conservation Service in the Department of Agriculture. Under the direction of Hugh H. Bennett, the SCS will develop extensive conservation programs that retain topsoil and prevent irreparable damage to the land. So there were farming techniques called strip cropping, terracing, crop rotation, contour plowing, and cover crops are advocated. So these things were not being done by the more inexperienced farmers at the time. So this is what they implemented. When the government people came to town and explained these new uh, farming techniques, they would be paid to uh, farm the land this way. Farmers are paid to practice soil-conserving farming techniques. Okay, December 1935. At a meeting in Pueblo, Colorado, experts estimate that 850 million tons of topsoil have blown off the southern plains during the course of the year, and that if the drought continues, the total area affected would increase from 4.35 million acres to 5.35 million acres by the spring of 1936. C.H. Wilson of the Resettlement Administration proposes buying up 2.25 million acres and retiring it from cultivation. Okay, now, all these people are flooding into California because of the Dust Bowl. In February of 1936, Los Angeles Police Chief James E. Davis sends 125 policemen to patrol the borders of Arizona and Oregon to keep out the, quote, undesirables. As a result, the American Civil Liberties Union sues the city. So, L.A. was controversial in the Dust Bowl era. 
May of 1936, the SCS publishes a soil conservation district law, which, if passed by the states, would allow farmers to set up their own districts to enforce soil conservation practices for five-year periods. It says one of the few grassroots organizations set up by the New Deal still in operation today, the Soil Conservation District Program recognized that new farming methods needed to be accepted and enforced by the farmers, not bureaucrats in Washington. So this was a big thing because the farmers, it sounded like from the book that I will not stop referencing, (laughs) um, they basically like this guy came in from the government and they're like, you don't know anything about farming, uh, back off. We're not doing any of your ideas. It needed some buy-in from farmers in the area to convince the other farmers in the area to get on board and enforce these things, which totally makes sense. Like you're not going to, if you're a farmer and you've been farming all this time, you're not just going to like drop everything and listen to a government guy who you feel like doesn't know anything about you. So this was a big turning point, I think, in the farming practices area because it helped farmers kind of get other farmers on board to the plan. January 20th of 1937, Roosevelt addresses the nation in his second inaugural address and stated, I see one third of the nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have little. So in March of 1937, FDR's Shelter Belt Project begins. It calls for a large-scale planting of trees across the Great Plains, stretching in a 100-mile-wide zone from Canada to northern Texas. And this, again, was to protect the land from erosion. So native trees like red cedar and green ash are planted along fence rows separating properties. And farmers and workers from the Civilian Conservation Corps are paid to plant them and cultivate them. So this is estimated to cost $75 million over a period of 12 years. It says when disputes arise over the funding sources, um, so uh, FDR transfers the program to the WPA, where the project, it says, had limited success. So the reason this was controversial was because the project was considered to be a long-term strategy, and so it was ineligible for any emergency relief funds. So it's like no one wanted to really fund this. Uh, the extensive work replowing the land into furrows, planting trees in shelter belts, and other conservation methods resulted in a 65% reduction in the amount of soil blowing. The drought still continues by 1938, but in 1939, the fall... Like, in the fall, the rain finally comes, it brings an end to the droughts, and then during the next few years with the coming of World War II, the country is then pulled out of the Great Depression, and the plans, the plains once again become golden with wheat. It's kind of interesting how the rains returned pretty much at the same time that we're getting into World War II. So we're pulled out of the Great Depression and the rains come back, like, and then it all kind of just culminates in us recovering. You know, again, some of the some of the effects of this lasted well into the 50s. But it is interesting that it all happened at once. Like the economics of, you know, the war helped pull us out of the Great Depression and the rains returned at the same time. So, um, I think we've talked a lot about the, um, 
farming practices that led to this with it was mostly like native grasses were were pulled out and then as the great depression started um and the prices plummeted then the farmers had to rip up more native grassland and then all the topsoil was um was ripped out so that's how it it really started and then it was exacerbated by this drought so that is the dust bowl and again, I would highly recommend reading The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna because it really takes like everything in those articles, every big event in those articles is really highlighted in the book, which I like. That seems almost a little bit cheesy because every single event was was highlighted and it's like, oh, let's just go through the average family in the Dust Bowl. But it's like so informative and it really gives a human element to it because it's easy to read about now. But it's really hard to actually day-to-day imagine what it would be like to try to survive something as huge and crazy as the Dust Bowl. Like, you have, your animals are choking. Every time they milked the cow, like, dust would come out of the udders the first few squeezes. And eventually, like, they couldn't get any actual, like, white milk. They just got just dust, basically. All their animals were suffocating. They had cars, but they couldn't go anywhere because the price of gas was too high. They had barely any money. Like every day was just a survival thing. And, and now I feel like if something like this happened, people, I don't, well, I say people wouldn't survive, but I think we would because I think humans are very adaptable, but it's like, I think we've just lost that kind of homesteading uh, way of life. And so it's just hard to imagine now in the, in the world we live in now, with just crazy amounts of things. You can go to a grocery store and just buy anything. It's a little bit hard to imagine this time period. COVID helped to, helped me imagine it a little bit where you went into the store and there was just no meat, no toilet paper, th- shelves were wiped out. And you were kind of like, okay, you know, could I survive if just the whole supply chain crumbled? And... I have this account on Instagram called semi-homesteading with Abby because I basically am trying to learn all these homesteading skills. I really am interested in like homemaking and homesteading and having chickens and stuff like that. So I'm trying to learn all these skills and it's just so fascinating to me because some people who I follow do live basically like this. They are fully self-reliant on their land. They're growing their own food. They're preserving their own food. But for the general population, a lot of these skills have been lost you know, in the book, people were going down into their cellar and getting things that they had preserved from that crop, uh, during the winter and, and, you know, making these meals that are very bare bones and just surviving. Some people live like that today, but, but not a lot of people have preserved those skills of making things from scratch and preserving things and canning things. And so it's just very interesting reading a book and having it bring to life like these are were actual people who survived who had to know all these skills who left their homes left their farms they had been on for generations and went to these terrible conditions to go try to find work it's just a crazy it's a crazy part of american history and i think sometimes people are like oh you know, I can't believe we live now. This is like so hard. You know, we lived through COVID. You know, there are a lot of people who, millennials, 
kind of complain about being a millennial. And um, they say, oh, you know, we were born, you know, let's say in the late 80s to mid 90s, I think is um, the, uh, considered a millennial. They're like, oh, we lived through 9-11. We lived through the housing crisis. We lived through um, COVID. And it's like, okay, well, some people lived through the the roaring 20s where everything was great. And then the Great Depression and were, in, were dust bowl farmers and had to move into California to try to work for pennies for like 12 hours a day. Then guess what? They had to live through World War II. Okay, yeah, I guess millennials have had to live some, through some stuff, but there hasn't been a time in history where they haven't, and I think living through the Great Depression would be far worse, in my opinion. Anyway, that is the Dust Bowl. I was fascinated learning about this, so I hope you found this interesting, and I will see you next week for another episode. I am sticking to my podcast schedule now, okay? You can you can count. <laughs> I, I'm keep saying this so you keep me accountable. You can count on an episode next Monday. All right. So, and every Monday from here on out. So thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to leave a review and a rating on the podcast and I will see you next week. Bye everyone.